passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the Spencer campus of Crosswinds. We are uh, continuing our way through the book of Genesis, and we just have two weeks left. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 49. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to that passage. Uh, But as you're opening up to that passage, I want us to start this morning in the book of Luke. During the Christmas season, when someone says we want to read from the book of Luke, typically they're referring to the beginning of Luke. They're looking at Luke 2, the birth of Jesus. This morning, we actually want to look at the end of Luke. We want to be in Luke chapter 24, the last chapter in the book of Luke. And we want to look at something that Jesus says to his disciples. Luke 24 picks up with the disciples after Jesus' crucifixion. They are distraught over the, the fact that they had follow, followed this man, this Jesus. They thought that he was the promised Messiah. And yet in all accounts, at least in their accounts, he was a failure. He had been crucified and died a criminal's death. And they were left unsure of what to do moving forward. Three days later... Something even more strange happens. This word begins to spread that this Jesus, the one that they had followed, he is alive. And and the disciples respond probably the same way that we would respond today if we heard that someone who we had seen die was said to be up and walking around. They, They respond with news that is too good to be true. They just can't believe it. And yet their lack of belief leads to confusion. This confusion that, that lives in them and is, is, is rooted deep down in their lack of understanding of who Jesus is. They had believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he was the one that God had promised to give to Israel to, to fulfill all of the promises to Israel. And yet they didn't fully understand, they didn't fully grasp what that meant. So our passage this morning, we're going to pick up in in uh, just a few verses that describe Jesus interacting with some of his disciples. And in this interaction with his disciples, he actually reveals to them just exactly who he is. Just exactly what he does. And he does so by pointing to the Old Testament. Luke chapter 24 says this, And he, being Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice that last phrase there. Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, what Jesus does is he he sees his disciples and they don't believe that he's actually alive. They don't even recognize him. And and Jesus is patient with them. And he says, you know what? Let's go ahead and open the Bible. And I'm going to start at the very beginning of the Bible. And I'm going to work my way all the way through the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you just how the Old Testament reveals who I am, 
Just how the Old Testament reveals what I must do to save my people, to be the Messiah. And you might be saying, well, what exactly does that have to do with us this morning? It has everything to do with us this morning. Every single passage in the Bible, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through Revelation chapter 22, verse 21, all of it points us to Jesus. Over the past year and a half, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis. Every single passage that we have looked at has pointed us to Jesus. Some passages, it is very clear how it points us to Jesus. Others, it's just a little bit of a glimpse. But every single passage in the book of Genesis points us to Jesus. Gives us a glimpse of Jesus. Gives us a glimpse of what Jesus has done for us. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage that is crucial in the book of Genesis to understand just who Jesus is, to reveal to us who we should expect Jesus to be. Thousands of years before Jesus' birth, thousand years before the traditional Christmas prophecies from the book of Isaiah and other places, we find this passage in Genesis. Here in Genesis 49, we see Jacob tell us what we should look for when we look for the Messiah. Luke tells us that that Jesus starts with Moses and the prophets and begins to explain who he is from the Old Testament. It's extremely likely Jesus opened to Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12, and said, this passage is all about me. This passage is all about Jesus. Last time we were in Genesis, we were in Genesis 48. We saw that we were at the end of Jacob's life. Genesis 48 tells us how he adopted two of his grandsons, Joseph's sons, to be his children. And this week is a continuation of that passage. Jacob is on his deathbed immediately after adopting his grandsons. He brings all of his sons in, and he begins to uh, give these pronouncements about each and every one of them, about their future. This morning, we don't have time to go through all of these different uh, passages, all these different verses that that describe Reuben and Simeon and Levi and the rest of them. We're just going to look at the the pronouncement about about Jacob. In your bulletin, you'll actually find a little insert that that lists the the different pronouncement and the specifics of how it was fulfilled in the Old Testament. Just a couple examples for us this morning. Reuben is the first one that is mentioned. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn, and yet in Genesis chapter 35, there is this incident where he tries a coup to take over leadership in his father's family. And it's just a throwaway verse in Genesis chapter 35. There's no real mention of what happens after that. And it looks, for all intents and purposes, that Jacob just ignores it, just ignores what Reuben has done. But then we get to Genesis chapter 49, and on his deathbed, Jacob clearly hasn't forgotten this moment. And he looks at Reuben, his firstborn, and he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. You are the pride of my life, and you have lost the status as my firstborn. All of the blessings that you were to receive, I am not going to give you because you defiled your father's couch. You tried to take over my family. And we look at the Old Testament 
We look at the, the significance of this pronouncement. This statement that Reuben and his family will lose the the privileges of the firstborn. And when we look at the Old Testament, we see that the tribe of Reuben quickly loses their influence or their historical significance in the tribes of Israel. No prophet, no judge, no king comes from the tribe of Reuben. Rather than settling in the land of Israel, they actually decide to settle right next to Moab in the land of the Transjordan on the other side of the Jordan River. They quickly fall from history. God's word is proven true. Simeon, Levi, same thing happens with them. In Genesis chapter 34, they were the ones who were responsible for the the sabotage, uh, the the deception uh, of the people uh, of Israel against the, the people of Shechem. They desecrated the holy symbol of circumcision as a ruse, as a way to weaken the people of Shechem so that they could slaughter them all and pillage the city. And Jacob looks at his two sons. He looks at Simeon. He looks at Levi and says, your anger, your bloodlust has lost you your status as the next two firstborns as well. In fact, because of your anger, you are going to be scattered throughout the people of Israel. And that's exactly what happens. 500 years later, the people of Israel are returning to the promised land. They're a great nation at this point. And Simeon, the tribe of Simeon, is given an allotment of land. But that land is completely hemmed in on all sides by the people of Judah. Within just a few generations, the people of Simeon are completely acclimated, completely assimilated into the tribe of Judah, and they disappear. Not in the literal sense, but for all intents and purposes, they disappear. The tribe of Levi. They are given no land in the promised land. Instead, they are given God as their inheritance because they are the priests of Israel. And they're given little cities throughout all of the promised land. They're scattered throughout the land, just as God's word says. You can go through each and every one of these passages. and You can see how God has his words proven true. Some of them are clearer than others, without a doubt. We just went through three of the clearest ones. But, but to, this morning, we're just going to focus on Judah. We're going to focus on verses 8 through 12, one of the most uh, important pronouncements of Genesis chapter 49, because they describe to us who Jesus is. They describe to us what Jesus is like and what he has come to do. In short, they tell us of the promised Messiah. And they give us four qualities of what this Messiah is like. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 49. We're going to be in verses 8 through 12. Judah, your brother, your your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, and shall tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. 
His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. These verses look and tell us about Jesus. They tell us about the coming promised Messiah. This is one of the clearest passages in Genesis that tells us just that. But it is not the only passage in Genesis that is about the Messiah that gives us a glimpse. There are countless shadows throughout the book of Genesis, countless whispers in Genesis that point us to Jesus. In fact, that's what Genesis is here for. That's why it's in the Bible, to point us to Jesus. When we started Genesis, we started in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where we see that God creates everything good. He creates earth to be his home. He creates humanity to dwell alongside of him, to rule with him, to enjoy his creation with him. God literally created heaven on earth, but as we all know and experience every day, it did not stay that way. Adam and Eve were not content to be like God. Instead, they wanted to be God. And so they broke God's command, and in doing so, they broke God's creation. Genesis tells us that they were ushered out of the garden. They were ushered out of God's presence because of their sin. And yet at the same time that they are ushered out of God's presence. In Genesis chapter 3, God says, it will not always be this way. Moments after Adam and Eve rebel against God, God says, it will not always be this way way. One day I am coming back. One day I will come and do battle against the serpent. I will fix my broken creation. I will fix your brokenness. One day I will come again and I will rescue you from darkness and despair. Genesis chapter 3 tells us the worst day in human history because it tells us the day that paradise was lost. And yet in the midst of this horrible day, We get a glimpse and a shadow of God's plan to save us and to save all of creation. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 gives us a glimpse of the gospel when God says this. I will put enmity between you being the serpent and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, what Genesis chapter 3 tells us is that there is going to be enmity between the serpent, between Satan and humanity for the end of time. And yet there is hope. There is a seed. There is an offspring who is coming. The seed of the woman will one day come. The Messiah will one day come. And he will make all things new. It is this promise, this promise of the seed The promise of offspring seen throughout the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4 tells us the horrible tale of Abel and Cain. When Cain is slain by Abel. The terrible picture of the darkness of humanity. And yet the end of Genesis 4 ends with a promise or a sign of hope. Eve has another son. And his name is Seth. We're left wondering as we look at Genesis 4, is is Seth the promised one? Is Seth the promised seed? It's very clear he's not, but he's a forerunner of the promised seed. We continue on to Genesis chapter 12. 
In Genesis chapter 12, we see all of humanity rebelling against God. They start building a tower, the Tower of Babel, in order to reach to the heavens and to dethrone God. And in response, what God does is he simply calls a man who's a a pagan moon worshiper named Abraham, Abram at the time, and he says, follow me. And Abraham does. God promises that he is going to one day save all of humanity through Abraham's family. Abraham isn't the seed. Abraham isn't the promised one. But he is a forerunner to the Messiah. Genesis chapter 21. We see that Abraham has been promised a a son. He's, He's 100 years old. His wife Sarah is 90. And they've been promised a son. And the question begins to build. Is this son, this promised son is it the promised son with a capital s is it the promised seed the one that genesis chapter 3 looks to and abraham has isaac and we see that well isaac isn't the promised seed isaac isn't the promised one but he is a forerunner to the messiah the same thing happens with isaac and his family when they have jacob the same thing happens with jacob and his family when he has all of his children specifically with joseph and yet we get to genesis chapter 49 we get to nearly the end of the book and it's clear to us that none of these people not seth it's not noah it's not abraham it's not isaac it's not jacob it's not joseph none of these people are the promised seed None of them will come to make all things right, to restore us to where we once were next to God. But they all point us to God. They all point us to the Messiah, the one who is coming. And then we get to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49, we see very clearly who this Messiah will be or what this Messiah will be like. One of the surprising things about Genesis 49 is that it will be Judah's offspring who is the the, the promised one. Judah had done enough to be disqualified uh, along with Reuben, along with Simeon, along with Levi, and yet he is chosen as the ancestor of the Messiah. And we see here four qualities of what this Messiah will be like. Let's take a look at each one individually. Thousands of years before Jesus' birth, four qualities of the Messiah. The first one that this passage reveals to us is this. First, the Messiah will be the praise of Israel. First, the Messiah will be the praise of Israel. Take a look at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. The first thing that is said about this seed is that he will be praised by his brothers. This is significant. It tells us that Judah and his clan will one day be exalted among all of the tribes of Israel. They will be the most important of the tribes. But notice the last line of verse 8. Not just that they will be the praise of Israel, but it says that your father's sons shall bow down before you. This word bow down can also be translated as worship. This is strong language that describes the kingship. Describes more being given to Judah's seed. What happens at Jesus' first coming? He's the object of praise. He's the object of worship of many in Israel. The shepherds at Christmas come and worship. The disciples, when they see Jesus calm the seas, stop and worship. 
on Palm Sunday, as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, the crowds who meet him worship him. Mark chapter 11 says this, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that had been cut off from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. Hosanna. It's a word we often hear every single Easter. But what does it mean? It's a Hebrew declaration of salvation. It's a Hebrew declaration of praise to the one that is said, Hosanna. It is a statement of confidence. Saying that we believe that salvation has come. And so when the people see Jesus, when they see Jesus entering into Jerusalem, they look at him and they say, salvation has come right now. This one who is riding into Jerusalem, he is the one who brings salvation. When they see Jesus on that Sunday, they see him as the promised Messiah. They see him as the one that is promised in Genesis 49. And the one who is promised in Genesis chapter 3. He is the one who brings salvation. He is the promised seed. And so they praise him. The people of Israel praise him. But the reality today, if we just look at our, at our world, most Jewish people do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. The number of, of Jews who are recognizing Jesus as the Messiah is growing, but the majority still do not. And yet the book of Romans, Paul tells us that that won't always be the case. That won't always be the case. Romans chapter 11 tells us that the Messiah, or excuse me, that the Jews will one day recognize their Messiah. That one day we can be confident that Jesus will again be the praise of Israel. That's the first thing that Judah, or excuse me, that Jacob tells us here in Genesis 49. The second one is this. The Messiah will one day defeat his enemies. The Messiah will one day defeat his enemies. Take a look at verse 8 again. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? This is vivid imagery. Of the power of the Messiah. Vivid imagery of this Messiah, almost like they are a lion describing the totality of their victory. Is a lion who is seizing his prey, who is dragging his prey back to his den and stands victoriously over it. It is complete and utter victory being described here, and it is that victory that we will one day see from the Messiah. So says Jacob. The New Testament uses similarly strong language to describe Jesus' victory on the cross. Jesus' victory on the cross is described as, as a statement of complete and utter surety. Jesus, the last words that he says on the cross are, it is finished. It's a statement of finality of what he has accomplished, the victory that he has brought. Paul, in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15 says this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Messiah will defeat his enemies. He will defeat his enemies in a display of power. The New Testament tells us that these enemies are sin and death, and they are already defeated. Romans tells us that God will soon crush Satan under our feet. But the reality is, if we look around, we look in our own lives, we still see death, we still see sin, we still see the effects of Satan at work. And so what do we make of this? What do we make of our declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet at the exact same time, we see death and sin still very much alive in this world? Peter declares in 2 Peter, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God has not completely crushed his enemies. He has not completely crushed sin and death. He has not completely crushed those who walk in opposition to the cross. Paul tells us in multiple places that those who are not Christians are actually enemies of God, that we stand in opposition to the cross. And the reason why we don't see total victory yet is because God is patient. God is compassionate. God is merciful. He wants to provide all with the opportunity to repent. The New Testament makes it very clear. Jesus has already defeated his enemies, and yet we won't yet see the totality of that victory until he returns. And the New Testament gives us assurance that he will return, and he will finish the job. In Revelation 17, 18, 19, we see the complete and utter victory of Jesus. How he one day will return and bring complete victory over his enemies and subjugate them before him. The Messiah will defeat his enemies. The third thing this passage teaches us about Jesus is this. The Messiah will be the praise of all the nations. Messiah will be the praise of all the nations. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, I just want to focus on this last half of this verse. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, as you hear that, you, you might have a, a different version uh, of the Bible. You might have something that, that says something like, until he comes to whom it belongs. Or until Shiloh comes. And this is a hard verse to understand. As you can tell, it's a hard verse for us to translate. So we might be saying, well, what exactly does this mean? What does it mean when it talks about tribute or talking about him coming to whom it belongs? And the answer for us is actually found by jumping to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2 describes the coming kingdom of God. It says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of Israel, or the mountain of the house of the Lord, shall be established... As the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. 
Isaiah chapter 2 looks towards the day when God's kingdom is established, when his Messiah rules and where his kingdom is the center of the world, that the nations will come into Jerusalem for fellowship with God, and they will come into Jerusalem to pay tribute and to pay honor to the Messiah, to the king of Israel. Genesis chapter 49 appears to be saying something somewhat similar. That a day is coming when all of the nations of the earth will come before the Messiah as their king. Some will come before him willingly. Others will come before him unwillingly. It doesn't matter if we translate verse 10 as saying until tribute comes to him. Or if we translate it as saying until Shiloh comes. Shiloh being a version of the word peace. Until peace comes when when he establishes his kingdom, or if we we interpret it to say until he comes to whom it belongs. It ultimately doesn't matter how we translate this. The focus is on his complete and other subjugation of the nations. We see this echoed in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, a very common passage, describes Jesus's exaltation with these words. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a day coming when people from every nation and tribe and language on the earth will bow before the Messiah. The The church is accomplishing this task right now around the globe. Each and every day, the the gospel is brought to new groups of people who have never heard the gospel before. Revelation 4, Revelation 5, Revelation 7, all of these passages tell us that there will be people from every tribe and language and tongue before the throne of God. And even now, the church is accomplishing that goal by the grace of God. We are seeing, even now, all nations brought under God's rule. But it's not fully accomplished. It's not fully complete. One day, the Messiah will be not just the praise of Israel, but the praise of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And the final thing that this passage teaches us, Genesis chapter 49 declares this, the Messiah will one day establish God's forever kingdom. He will one day establish God's forever kingdom. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. First time I read these verses, I just kind of assumed that this was referring to, to wrath. It was referring to, to God's wrath. After all, there are passages in the Bible that refer to the winepress of God's wrath. And here we're talking about wine. This is solidified, in my opinion, by the language of the blood of grapes. It, it conjures up wrath again. The closeness of imagery to the lion's ferocity being described here. It only seems to solidify my view at first that this was about wrath. But then you take a step back, you you look at it a little closer, and you realize that this isn't about wrath at all. It's actually about abundance. In ancient times, wine was actually a sign of abundance. 
was a sign of abundance. And, and these verses tell us that there is going to be a day when the Messiah's kingdom is so plentiful. There is so much wine in this kingdom that he's going to be able to bring his donkey up to a vine, the choicest vine. He's going to be able to tie his donkey to that vine and not care at all about whether he damages the crop. He's not going to care about damaging his harvest because wine, because grapes are so plentiful in his kingdom. In a culture when dyeing clothes was so difficult, at least permanently dyeing clothes, was so difficult because of the cost, this passage tells us that when the kingdom of the Messiah comes, wine will be so abundant that you'll be able to use it to dye your clothes. Language in verse 12 of his eyes and his teeth just describe his majesty, the majesty of the kingdom or the king, the Messiah. What Jacob is doing here, in a way, is describing Genesis going full circle. Genesis is going full circle. It starts with the kingdom of God in Eden. God has established a perfect, beautiful kingdom for his children to live in, to work in, and to enjoy alongside of him. And of course, sin enters the world, and we see that very clearly in all of Genesis. And then we get to Genesis chapter 49, even when sin has come, even when sin has ruined paradise. Here in Genesis 49, we catch a glimpse of that restoration. A day is one day coming when the Messiah will return. And with the Messiah comes abundance. Our needs will cease. Our life will be restored. God will reign, not just in heaven, but also here on the earth. And God will establish his forever kingdom in his Messiah. Genesis 49 tells us boldly that the Messiah is coming. Christmas, we just got done celebrating it. Christmas boldly declared that the Messiah has come. And this morning we profess... As we look at this passage, that in the face of today's uncertainty, the Messiah has come. So let us remember that the Messiah has come. With every fiber of our being, remember that the Messiah has come and is coming again. The world around us seems to argue that there is no Messiah, that there is no God, that there is no one who is going to come and save us from our brokenness, but we can say otherwise. Because the Messiah has come, and he is coming again. And so as we close, as, as we close Genesis 49, ask yourself, is Genesis 49 the picture of your Messiah? When you think of Jesus, do you think of the four qualities described in Genesis chapter 49? That he is the praise of Israel as well as all people. That he is a conquering king and that he is coming to establish God's forever kingdom. Genesis 49 gives us confidence that Jesus is a Messiah who is worthy of worship. And so let us worship the Lion of Judah. Let us worship our promised Messiah, our Savior King. We worship a risen king in a world that diminishes his majesty, his power, his greatness. Let us remember the words of Genesis 49 spoken thousands of years before Jesus came. 
the Messiah has come and he is coming again. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to stand in awe of you. Help us to look to you as our Messiah, as our Savior and as our King, as our Ruler, as our Lord, as the one who stands victorious over sin and death and all your enemies and the one who comes to establish God's kingdom here on earth. Thank you for the mercy that you have extended to us that we should be called children of God. As we continue in worship this morning and the rest of this week, help us to fix our eyes upon you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.